The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Republican attempts to overhaul Obamacare look dead and buried. So what does this mean for the rest of the Trump administration's agenda? And meanwhile, the president's fuzziness on NAFTA is giving Mexico and Canada an opening. These are the issues we'll be tackling in this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among breaking news columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm your host, Anthony Curry, and I'm joined, as ever, by my co-host, Jen Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello. And we have a full house in Washington, D.C. this week. Our team is joining us to discuss both these issues. We've got Gina Chon as well as Anastasia Chacon. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. So the Better Care Reconciliation Act is now currently dead. Gina, you've been following this issue very closely since President Trump took office in January, and his desire has been to completely overhaul health care in the United States. How big is this latest setback that just occurred? It's pretty major. This is the second attempt by the Senate to try to replace Obamacare. The last attempt in June failed as well. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's um, latest gambit is now to just repeal the law outright without a replacement and have a two-year transition in which they hope to figure out some sort of alternative plan. But as we've seen now um, in the last few months, that seems highly unlikely. As we've seen, the Republican Party is pretty divided on this front, on both the conservative and moderate side. So they've had a really hard time coming up with a compromise that could satisfy both. In the meantime, that means if they do try to do an outright repeal, that could kick off millions of people from insurance coverage, both through the state exchanges or through Medicaid, which was also expanded under Obamacare. The number here is, what, 32 million if Obamacare is is just nixed completely. Making 32 million people completely uninsured strikes me as a really bad gambit to take when you've got elections coming up. Yeah, no, you're right. They're major problems for the party. They had promised for seven years now that they would repeal Obamacare, and obviously they couldn't while the legislation's namesake, President Obama, was in office because he vetoed every attempt to get rid of the law. But now that he's gone and the Republicans control all the branches, they haven't been able to move forward on this major effort. And as you say, the 32 million number is is quite um, an an eye-opener and is actually 10 million more than the latest Senate bill that got killed um, in terms of how many people it would hurt. So you've already seen three Republican senators publicly come out and say they're not going to vote for the repeal effort. And there's um, a few more who seem like they're also leaning towards that way. So even that effort seems like it's also destined to fail. So the other thing I saw when looking at some of the news is that, that Mitch McConnell is considering, of all things, heaven forfend, negotiating with Democrats to try and do something. Just tell me, how realistic is this? This is this is, healthcare is an issue which, for seven years, no party has given any support to the other. No Republicans voted for Obamacare. Some Democrats even voted against it, as I recall, and no Democrats are in favour of doing anything to, to changing Obamacare now. So. Is McConnell really serious about doing this, or is it just an attempt to try and show that um, it's not just Republicans who can't get anything done? Well, I think he is facing pressure from some in his own ranks. The question is, how far can you really go with that? There 
are democratic reach outs in terms of wanting to do something, but it will likely be more on the edges in terms of possibly stabilizing the exchanges, maybe doing something more on health savings accounts, you know, something that all sides could agree on, but it would be smaller tweaks as opposed to a major overhaul. But there is a recognition actually from the Democrats as well that the exchanges do need some help just given the insurers who have pulled out. So, Gina, kind of given your earlier comments about the fact that the repeal, I mean, that they're going to vote on next week, that doesn't even look like it's it's going to happen. So what is next? Does that mean that Obamacare just kind of stays on the books or the Republicans, are they going to abandon this for a while or table it for a while and say, OK, listen, we're going to turn to other things like, say, tax reform? Or do you think that they're going to try and, and work through both these agendas? Yeah, there is a sense that perhaps McConnell could still go forward with the repeal vote, even knowing that it could fail, just to get it on the books that, you know, he tried, and now these senators are on the record on where they stand, and and they could move on. There could be attempts to try to fix it, as I said earlier, on sort of the edges. But the Congress also has a full plate with a lot of issues that have very strict deadlines, like the debt ceiling, which they're going to have to deal with after they come back from their August recess. They also have the budget they have to deal with, which actually has to be resolved before they can move on to tax reform. So there's a whole host of other issues that they need to address, and they're in danger of ending the year without any major accomplishments. Let's turn to tax reform, for example. Another one of both Donald Trump's and senior House and Senate Republicans' desires to see taxes come down. Just on bank earnings this week, one of the chief executives, James Gorman and Morgan Stanley, made what was almost an impassioned plea to Washington to get tax reform done, almost as if saying, you know, we, you know I'm putting words in his mouth, but, oh, my word, you, you couldn't even get health care done, but you've got to at least get taxes done. I mean, how likely is this to get done, given that they couldn't get reformed a health care plan that they've hated for seven years? I do have to say that they're a bit more organized on this than they were on health care, particularly from the administration's perspective. They do have uh, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and the National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn being the point people on this for President Trump, and they've been meeting regularly with congressional leaders. But as with anything, and especially with tax reform, the devil's in the details, and there's a lot of things that they either want to add or subtract that's going to bring out an army of lobbyists who are going to have a lot of money to spend to try to get their way and pull lawmakers to their side. There's also this sort of divide on how the wealthy are treated, which also came up in uh, the health care debate, and whether some of the moderate Republicans are going to want to give them as big of a tax cut as the administration wants. Gina, I mean, I think one thing that the health care repeal and, and replace and, or whatever you want to call it has, has exposed is just this deep rift within the Republican Party. Does that same rift exist with tax reform? Or is it that they are slightly more on the same page? Or are we going to see the same thing, more or less? No, there's, there's definitely rifts. You know, some of the more deficit hawks who are worried about how much the tax cuts could pull away in terms of government revenue. Um, there's moderates who are concerned about tax cuts for the wealthy, which if you look at Trump's tax plan would help them much more than they do the middle class or lower income people. Then there's a whole host of sort of business tax deductions, whether it's on interest, 
payments and a whole host of other issues, whether state and local tax deductions will also get repealed, which would affect states like New York a bit more than some of the, the Beltway states. So there's a lot of issues that are going to be coming up that are going to pit people against each other. And that just makes for a really dicey atmosphere to try to get something done. Okay, well, let's turn to another part of the president's agenda, which which came out this week, which uh, both you, Gina, and, and you, Anastasia, have been looking at, and that's NAFTA. Of course, NAFTA was one of the big issues that Trump used to lambast on the campaign trail, saying it was a terrible deal for America. Of course, this is this now has, has contributed to, was it? I think it's a $1.1 trillion deal if you include all goods that go from the U.S. to Canada to Mexico and into the U.S. from Canada and Mexico. So this is no small deal we're talking about. Trump wants to change it. Let's start with Eugenia. You looked at what his trade representative, Robert Lighthizer, came out with this week in terms of uh, a wish list. What does that tell us about where negotiations may go? I mean, broadly, it does capture some of the goals that the president had outlined, particularly wanting to reduce the trade deficit, which is at um, $63 billion in 2016 with Mexico. It's much smaller with Canada, but there's still a shortfall there. Actually, I think, I think the U.S. has a trade surplus with Canada. But you're just talking about goods, right? Yes, exactly. Just goods. But when you look at the details of the objectives, um, which is only 18 pages long, it's very vague and there's not a lot of specifics in there in terms of how they're going to achieve some of these goals. So that actually gives the negotiators a bit of wiggle room in terms of how they want to go about renegotiating the specific terms, which could help them come up with a deal that's more of a win-win-win as opposed to the way President Trump has been talking about it, which is very U.S. America first focused. Does this goods deficit matter? We're talking about $63 billion in a, in a $500, $600 billion to and fro of goods being sold. Why does this trade deficit matter? I, I think it actually doesn't, and it's become a weird obsession with the president, and he has some people around him who focus much more on this issue. But when you look at trade deficits, they're more a function of consumption and saving habits of the various countries involved. So obviously in the United States, we save less and we consume more. So you see that in the results. But when you look at the effects of NAFTA overall, our exports to both of those countries has risen by, you know, double digit percentages since the pact went into effect in 1994. There have been, you know, various um, industries that maybe have been hurt more than others, but overall it it's seen as a positive deal for everyone involved. Now, of course, Mexico and Canada have both uh, had their own say in what they think about renegotiations. I think mostly they, they have no problem generally renegotiating, although I think the Mexican finance minister recently was on record saying that that the mercantilist view, as he sees it, of the Trump administration is a bit ridiculous on you know, looking at the deficit as being the problem. But, of course, they're not standing still either. And, Anastasia, you took a really good look at this recently uh, about how both Canada and Mexico are looking at ways of expanding 
where they buy and sell their goods. So why don't you talk us through what opportunity Trump has given them by opening up negotiations? Right. So I think that uh, Mexico and Canada are both on board uh, to modernize the NAFTA uh, agreement, but they've also been moving a lot on the trade front in recent months. They've been seeking new partners. They've been talking to old ones to revisit and strengthen existing trade agreements. And they're doing this in part to reduce their dependence on the United States. Uh, And in the process, they're getting some leverage going into the NAFTA renegotiations, which are set to begin in August by showing America that they have other options for trade that are not the United States. Uh, so, for example, Canada and the European Union finalized their new trade agreement this year and recently announced that it will be implemented in September. There's also been a lot of talk about Canadian interests in strengthening ties with China. There's been some Mexican hints at uh, a relationship with China as well. And there's been they've been in touch with the with the European U- Union as well to strengthen an already existing trade agreement. But most importantly, they've also been looking south to other Latin American countries, uh, particularly Brazil and Argentina for products that they're currently getting from the United States, like corn. And corn's going to be a big one, right? That's, I mean, Mexico uh, is a big importer. So what's the impact there? Who gets hurt and who gets helped if Mexico finds somewhere else to go? Uh, right. So first of all, it, it, it's important to note that, yeah, Mexico is a huge export market for corn. It, it's a key ingredient in the Mexican diet uh, with tortillas and whatnot. Uh, and it's also a key ingredient in their large beef, poultry and pork industries, because that's what they feed the cows and the chickens and the and the pigs. Uh, so uh, Mexican domestic production of yellow corn is not enough, and they turn uh, to foreign markets for their supply. And they've been turning to th- to the United States in recent years. In fact, in 2016, uh, 98% of the corn that Mexico imported came from the United States, uh, and it had a total value of $2.6 billion. So that makes corn the largest U.S. agricultural export into Mexico. So corn is big, corn is important. Uh, and what's happening now is that Mexico is looking to get its corn from Brazil and Argentina. And Brazil is one of the largest producers and one of the largest exporters as well of yellow corn. And it's probably the United States' main competitor in the global corn market. And Argentina, their corn this year is actually the cheapest in the market because of a record crop yield this year. So both Brazil and Argentina are looking to to sell their corn. And as I mentioned, uh, Mexico is a perfect export market for corn. Uh, So it's like a match made in heaven. Well, that that really, he really has opened up a can of worms there, hasn't he, Mr. Trump, by, <laughs> by insisting on this? Anastasia, thanks for talking us through that. And Gina, thanks for joining us as well. Thanks. Thank you for having me. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Anthony Curry, and our guests, Gina Chan and Anastasia Chacon. Thanks to our producers, Bethel Hopde and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our show. Tune in next week for another episode of the Views Room, and thanks for joining us.